And uh, welcome, friends. It is good to be with all of you, and we are glad that you are here worshiping with us today. Um, and as we go about our, our week, what we're doing this, uh, this week is we're closing out a seven-week series so far on the book of Job. And then next week, we want to make sure that we invite you to a Selah service. And the last time we did a Selah service, that's around the idea in the Psalms of how the word Selah can mean a bunch of things. Normally, people interpret it as pause or rest, um, but it can also mean like consider, way out. Or beyond that, it can mean um, and be interpreted as a musical note. Let's focus here. Let's intensify. Or if you're musical, like fortissimo is the idea. And so that word in Hebrew means a variety of things. And next week, what we'll do is at the end um, of, a, of this series preaching through Job, we want to experience different ways to selah, to reflect, to pause, to lift up the word of the Lord and see what's been stirring in us. So that's a little bit different as an interactive service, um, but we're looking forward to that next week. And I'll be in this space at this time. But as we've been going over the last seven weeks or so, um, we've started Job 1, and now we're in Job 42. Our reading is from Job 42, verses 7 through 17. If you would, join me as we reflect on this word. We're reading from the Common English Bible this week, and starting in verse 7, it goes as such. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, he said to Eliphaz from Timon, I'm angry at you and your two friends because you haven't spoken about me correctly, as did my servant Job. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and prepare an entirely burned offering for yourselves. Job, my servant, will pray for you, and I will act favorably by not making fools of you because you didn't speak correctly as my servant Job did. Eliphaz from Taman, Bildad from Shua, and Zophar from Naamah did what the Lord told them, and the Lord acted favorably toward Job. Then the Lord changed Job's fortune when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord doubled all Job's earlier possessions. All his brothers, sisters, and acquaintances came to him and ate food with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him concerning all the disaster the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a kesita and a gold ring. Then the Lord blessed Job's latter days more than his former ones. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named one Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third, Karen Hapakuk. No woman in all the land were as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave an inheritance to them, along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw four generations of his children. Then Job died, old and satisfied. This is God's word. So my dad grew up in... Hong Kong, um, 70 years ago. And at the time, you know, when he was going to church growing up, he grew up uh, going to church from a very young age. 
And one of the things that was common for them, especially for the first 15-ish so years of his life, was when they would go to Sunday school, when they'd go to church, uh, they were fearful that maybe their access to the Bible wasn't always going to be um, as open as what they had in Hong Kong. And they looked around and they said, in China, maybe that might come here. And so that influenced the way that Sunday school worked for them. From a very young age, he was memorizing verses of the Bible. And then when he got to about 10 years old, Sunday school consisted of memorizing a chapter from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they'd go home, and then the next week, Sunday school was reciting with a partner chapter from the Bible. And then it slowly turned into multiple chapters. And by the end, as they're going through Sunday school, they're doing books, and they're reciting long passages to each other. Now, this is the environment my dad grew up in in Hong Kong. So he's someone who loves the Bible and knows the Bible in very uh, profound ways. And beyond that, as he's doing this, as he's memorizing and knowing large portions of the Bible, at the same time, he also has a tense relationship with the Bible, and specifically, he has a very tense relationship with the passage we just read, with Job. Again, he loves the Bible, memorizes a lot of it, still will recite in the King James, because that's what they had, right? The, he's in the Cantonese version, and then the English version he had was the King James. So he still talks with, like, the archaic language when he's quoting scripture. Um, but this chapter has always grated on him. And it comes from his story, because he lost a spouse. And when he lost a spouse, the mom before my mom, he gets to passages like this, and in churches... The thing that made this chapter and this book so difficult for him was the kind of comfort that comes from a reading of this chapter that says, well, at the end, everything is doubled. Look at that. Look at that. You endured. You know, in church, sometimes we can allow a chapter like this, a book like this, to affect us in ways that Try and read this book formulaically, right? So the formula there is you endure suffering, you stay true to who God is, and at the end of the day, everything's doubled. You might even focus on verse 10, right? In my tradition, the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, uh, there was a time when this passage I would hear preached something like this. Verse 10 would go, Job prayed for his friends, and then... God doubled his possessions. So the formula is pray, claim, and then receive double. There's a tradition within Christianity that would focus on it that way. But what I want to move us to is to say, what if that tradition and that reading isn't exactly what's happening uh, in this book and in in this passage? I think for many of us, we would be resistant to that kind of reading. Say, I don't know if God's really that way. So the question for us is, then how do we read this book at all? How do we read this passage? Where we see Job pray for his friends and it receives double after enduring trauma and hardship and suffering. What do we do with this? What makes a good reading a good reading? 
St. Augustine talks about how the thing to do to judge whether a reading is good or not is whether it forms two things. The first thing is love of God, and the second thing is love of neighbor. And if a reading doesn't do that, even if you can show in the text what is happening, you're not reading scripturally, faithfully, in a way that points to who Jesus is. Remember, every week when we come around this book, and every time we read it as scripture, we're reading it in a way that points the one that's meant to be revealed in scripture, Jesus. It's a claim within Christianity that we hope infuses everything we do as people of faith. And so, as we wrap up this series preaching on where Job is, how we do this, you know, how might we read Job faithfully, and more importantly, how might this book read us this morning, meet us where we're at, form us to love God and love neighbor? Our passage starts in Job, again, 42.7, and this is in the book, the start of the epilogue. And so we've touched on different things all through the book where there's been emphasis on chapters on the justice of God or unpacking um, the, the poetry that happens, Job's response, the presence of friends. We, we've talked about all of that so far in this series. And now we're at the very end, right? The end of the book. And the Lord speaks to Eliphaz and condemns him saying, I'm angry at you and your two friends because you haven't spoken about me correctly as did my servant Job. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've looked at the friends, but in the scope of the story, we won't understand the significance of God's speech unless we go back to hear what Eliphaz says um, earlier on, what he's already said. Job has been mourning. His friends come and visit with him. They sit for seven days with him. And then Eliphaz, who really values God and the ways of God, he breaks the silence. Right? So they've been sitting together for seven days. Eliphaz finally speaks, breaks the silence. And when he breaks the silence, he offers a couple reasons why Job may have experienced the suffering he has experienced. The loss of his children, the loss of livelihood, of possessions. Again, his friends sit with him. Then Eliphaz, he breaks the silence. I do believe that he's well-meaning, too. Like he wouldn't sit with his friend for seven days in silence if he wasn't well-meaning, if he didn't care for his friend. I think he truly means well, but this is what he says. This is his argument. He says, Those who are truly good are never entirely forsaken, and God always rightly punishes secret sin. So, that's what it means for God to be a just God. He does that. Innocent people, they don't suffer. They don't suffer. And so, Job, what secret sin is bringing this wrath of God on you? This is what Eliphaz speaks in his first breaking of silence. And then, if you follow the book of Job, as we looked at, there's three different cycles, right? Like, the friends speak, Job responds. The friends speak. Job responds. Happens three different times through. And progressively, if you follow Eliphaz's speech, it hammers this point home more and more. Like, I know you experienced something, but maybe you're to do with it. Maybe there's something in your life that's making God turn on you. This is the speech of Eliphaz. 
Have you ever heard something like that in church? In your faith? A sense of victim blaming cloaked with this spiritual language about God and sin? Maybe the favor of God language comes in there? This, friends, is not a description of who God is. Instead, it's a description of the temptation that we might have as religious folk, as people of faith, to over-spiritualize suffering and keep the reality of brokenness an arm's length away. It's bad theology. And it paints a picture of a transactional God. And in our modern Western American Christian context, here's the thing. I see myself in Eliphaz. I don't like that it's there, but I recognize ways that how I've engaged the world might have been formed in this way. Maybe not as explicit as Eliphaz, but I see threads in my life. If you've ever seen someone going through something really difficult, really difficult, and your first response is, well, you reap what you sow, right? Or... I mean, I think you could plan better there, or something along that line, instead of the first response being like Christ when he looks at the crowd with compassion. If that's the first response, this is where this passage starts to drill back on us and read us. How might the character of Eliphaz show up in our own character? How might the character of Eliphaz show up in our own character? Eliphaz, he's a man of principle. His, la- his name, it literally means, my God is pure gold. That's what Eliphaz means. But here's the thing. Principles rooted in a transactional view of God will only ever lead to dehumanization. Right? Principles rooted in a transactional view of God will only ever lead to dehumanization. It will dehumanize us, and it will cause us to dehumanize others. As humans, we replicate what we celebrate. Like we see something and we want to be something if we value it. And so how might you celebrate about God and how how might all of this be replicated in your life? Ultimately, does your life replicate Jesus? Does it look like Jesus? In our passage, it is right that God calls out Eliphaz. And now, notice how Job refers, or is referred to by God right after this. God says, You haven't spoken to me correctly like my servant Job. Maybe it's not news to you, but it's striking. I was reading this week, and I had to just pause. Because from chapter 1 through chapter 42, all the way through the entire book, I had never noticed that Job is still referred to as God's servant from the beginning through the end. And he's introduced as my servant. The ending, he's still called my servant. Through all his suffering, his grieving, the things he's experienced, but then beyond that, his mourning process, which leads to his questions, which leads to his doubts, his angers, his frustrations, all of that, God still says, my servant, Job. 
Maybe like me, you've missed this before, but this is a word for us today. Job is introduced as God's servant. And after everything he's been through and after everything he said, he is still God's servant. Follow the story. Don't mistake this, friends. God is not transactional. If we think about that, we're letting the theology of Eliphaz capture our spirits. God is relational. And this view of God as relational changes everything. Changes everything. Because as we continue on in verse 8, take note of the change that happens Job 1 through Job 42. In verse 8, God continues his speech to Eliphaz and says, So now, take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, and prepare an entirely burned offering for yourselves. Job, my servant, will pray for you. When we're first introduced to Job, the story tells us four things about him. The first thing is he's a man from the land of Uz. He's the greatest in the East. The second thing is that he's honest. The third thing, he's a person of absolute integrity. The fourth thing, he fears God and avoids evil. So he's devout. He loves the Lord. But then slowly uh, after we read this about how great, how righteous Job is, right? This description, this fourfold description of him. Slowly after we read that, we get details that tell us how he actually lives out his faith, right? Job 1 introduces four things about him, tells us that this man is a religious man. But then the next verses frame out how that religion actually lives out in his life, what it plays out as. And the story tells us that Job was so devoted to God that after every one of his kids' birthday parties, where the whole family is invited, lots of celebration, Job 1, 5 says this, Job would send word and purify his children. Getting up early in the morning, he prepared entirely burned offerings for each one of them. That's 10 individual sacrifices with the rites and rituals because he has 10 kids. He'd do that for every kid. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and then cursed God in their hearts. So Job did this regularly. Again, Job is a devout man. Right? He loves the Lord, and he loves his family. He loves his kids. He's a righteous man. And in his understanding of God and spirituality, do you know what kind of faith Job practices? Right? This church-going, Bible-loving, worship-music-loving person. Right? Do you know what kind of faith he practices? He practices preemptive faith. He practices preemptive faith. Right? He's described as faithful, and then the next verse tells us about the nature and character of his faith. And when he looks at his kids, he says, just in case they have sinned, I'm going to offer sacrifices for them. Let's preempt what's happening. This is how we're introduced to Job. But, of course, this isn't the end of Job's story. Because now in 42, 42 chapters later, in our passage this morning— we get to see the transition. We see Job move from practicing preemptive, transactional faith to now he's practicing present, relational faith. Right? From preemptive, transactional 
to present and relational. This is the beauty of Job, right? We have to read the whole story to capture what it's saying. This is how Job actually prophetically speaks to us. It speaks to us in this way. It foretells. Sometimes, and depending on the Christian tradition you're part of, prophecy might be interpreted as like telling something from the future, like fortune telling or something in that side, right? But what we want to say is more than speaking something that was or might be, what we want to do is embody the work of God and foretell, like speak into existence, participate in the life of God. Generally, that is where the Christian faith has talked about prophecy. It's a, more a foretelling than a foretelling. One way to read Job prophetically is to read it as a journey from an understanding of God that stops working when he encounters the depth of suffering and real life. It just doesn't work for him. His categories don't work anymore. Right? The truths and promises he learned in Sunday school, they don't connect anymore. The things that he held with absolute certainty, he doesn't hold anymore. He says, I don't know if I can still hold this vision of faith over here. Black and white, cause and effect, formulaic understanding of faith, it doesn't mesh with the world around him now. Because life is complex. It's not as simple as it was here. And it's in this moment, in this realization, that Job cries out to God in desperation. Are you more than my understanding? Like, is there more to you than this? Are you more than the God that I learned to grow up worshiping? Is there more to you, God? Job 10.4, I think, captures the essence of Job's speech more than anything. This is what Job says. He says, Do you have eyes made of flesh? Can you look at things as a human does? Like, God, if you're so powerful and you're over there, that's great, but can you see the world as a human does? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see me? Friends, God does answer. And while all series we've emphasized different ways that Christians interpret God's response, in our hearing this morning, God invites us to recognize that when God is asking Job all the questions of the universe, right, he's reminding Job of this fundamental truth. He's got the whole world in his hands. Just like the Sunday school song. Right? He's got the whole world in his hands. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? Have you seen all the animals? Can you comprehend how the cosmos is held together? How it's all connected? How I have the whole world in my hands? When God asks Job these questions, he's guiding Job to recognize the depth and breadth of relationship that God, God has with all of creation. And more specifically, the depth and breadth of relationship that God wants to have with Job. He's got the whole world in his hands. This whole book of Job aims to show us how we might move from, an under, from one understanding of this 
to another understanding of this. If we follow the story, it's a movement for Job to understand this. What it's like to be held. Not living your faith in a way that transactionally causes God to hold you, but a recognition that God already holds you. Relational, not transactional. Present, not preemptive. This is simple, yet unendingly profound. Job encounters a new vision of a God who hears and sees him. And in his hearing and seeing, his eyes are opened, his ears unstuffed, so that the transactional description of God, who seems to be playing cosmic chess with Job's life in the early chapters, right, that presentation, it shifts to being represented as a relational God who holds the world together in the wake of immense loss. This marks Job. It actually transfigures every relationship he has from this moment on. For as committed as Job was to the practice of offering sacrifices, remember, the book starts by him offering a sacrifice for every kid after every feast day and every gathering. That's a lot of sacrifices. He's committed to this view and vision and practice of God. But for as committed as he is, after this moment, this dialogue with God, we never hear of Job offering another sacrifice again. He just doesn't do it. He has more kids. They obviously will have more birthdays, but it does, we just never hear of it. He never, he never sacrifices again. As his theology shifts, the nature of how he expresses his faith shifts as well. His intercession takes on a different quality, a timber. He's no longer interceding about what might be. He's now interceding over what is. No longer preemptive, present. People are sacrificing and he intercedes for them in the moment. In Job 1, we learn that Job has seven sons and three daughters. In our passage today, we learn that after everything he's been through, he is able to father again. His wife is able to mother again. They are able to love again. Like we shouldn't overlook this. This is a huge part, right? It, it flies by in a verse or two. But in the midst of trauma and loss and suffering, this story shows us that he gets to a point where he's able to love again. He's able to be loved again. In my family's story, my life and my twin, I have a twin, he's in California, uh, our lives testify to this kind of possibility. That after loss, life can happen. I know for Job, this is not a painless story. It never is. We never want to romanticize or trivialize pain and suffering. But again, we don't want to overlook what happens in this one verse, in this one line that says he was able to have 10 more kids. Seven sons, three more daughters. 
Job is able to love again. And the pain of loss isn't erased in his life, just like how Christ's wounds are not erased. It doesn't just disappear. But the hope that God invites us into is the hope that our pains and wounds will be redeemed. This is Christ's story, right? Remember on the Emmaus Road, he's walking, and as he's walking, the, the two people, disciples, who are there, he's walking with, they don't recognize him. Now, if you were to dive into that passage, it says that Cleopas is one of the people, one of the disciples, and then the companion. Theologians normally articulate, I won't go through how they get here, but they articulate that what he's, who he's walking with are actually his uncle and his aunt. Right? And there's a long way to engage that and unpack details on the text. But anyways, he goes and he walks by and he's about to walk by and leave past them and they invite him in and they say, do this. And Jesus pretends, he says, he intends to walk them by, or to walk past. He makes as if he's going to walk past them. And this is Eastern hospitality, right? Like you don't take the first invitation because the second one's the real one. You offer the invitation to come and eat with everyone. Then culturally, everyone says, no, 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 no thanks. And then the second invitation is the real invitation. So he eventually goes and he sits. And then it says he breaks the bread. Jesus breaks the bread. Now, like, this is shocking for us because he's in someone else's house. You don't break bread in someone else's house, right? The other person, the person who is the homeowner, the, the patriarch of the house, the master of the house, they're the one who blesses and break the bread. So Jesus asks and says, I'm going to break the bread. And then it says that they recognize Jesus when he breaks the bread. Oftentimes in Christian tradition, we talk about how that's tied to communion, right? The act, remembering of the Last Supper, we can do it that way. The more linear way of just reading the story is when he breaks the bread, they see his wounds. And then they recognize Jesus. That's another interpretation that exists of that story. They see his woundedness. Where is Jesus? Present in the wounds. Jesus carries wounds, just like how Job carries wounds. And there's life on the other side of that. The pain of loss, again, isn't erased, not forgotten but it's redeemed and transfigured. And we see that happen in Job's life. As we look at the story arc for Job, after everything, he has found new understanding of God and can be faithfully present with his kids in a new way, where there's no distinction between who gets an inheritance. Did you catch that detail? As we read Job 42, every kid gets an inheritance, which, again, we might miss, but culturally, that doesn't happen. Women don't get inheritances. The text tells us that after he has this encounter, he has seven more sons and three daughters, and all of them get an inheritance. It's showing a change in relationship. It's showing a change in how he holds relationship. Present and relational faith alters how Job relates to his family and every other person he meets for the rest of the story. 
Even more shocking is this, how when Job receives double of everything, don't overlook that servants and slaves are no longer seen as property anymore. They're not mentioned. Right? Job 1-2 talks about how much Job has. It says, he had seven sons, three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and vast numbers of servants so that he was the greatest of all the people in the East. After his encounter with God, Job 42, 12, he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. He certainly couldn't tend to all of these by himself. We know his servants, they come back to him, right? They report back after every tragedy happens. And says, and I'm the only servant that was able to come back and was able to tell the tale. He still has servants. But they're no longer seen as property. Job's life is fundamentally different in Job 42. His understanding of God is different. His faith is different. His experience of life is different. And his relationships become different. No longer preemptive and transactional. No, mo- no longer commodifying, right? But instead, present and relational and based in communion. So what now? We've traced Job's journey of faith from preemptive faith to present faith, right? We've traced all of this. And what about me? What about you? What does your faith look like? Whether you claim Christianity as your faith tradition at all, right? what does faith look like in your life? There's a recognition that faith is never static, right? It's not something we own. It's a gift of God that opens up for us ways to think and engage a God who is bigger than our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. And just faith isn't static in that way to become a master of it. The journey of faith is one of not mastering of something, but being mastered by one who has created all of us. And so as we think about our journey of faith, I love what Fleming Rutledge says about this. Fleming Rutledge, pastor, priest, theologian, talks about how in Job, what we see is a new way of thinking. When God reveals himself, the old arrangements become obsolete. Because Job has a consuming desire to receive a response from God, and he got one. It was not the response he could have expected, but in an utterly strange way, God was ultimately gracious to Job. If the book of Job tells us anything, it's about a journey of faith. A journey of faith from one vision of God that plays out into a life that has him walking on eggshells. He has to offer sacrifices just in case my kids sinned. And now, he gives inheritance to everyone. Life is too short. I am sharing. (laughs) And I'm sharing not just with my sons. I'm sharing with my daughters. And my servants, they're here. 
we're tending, we're taking care of things, like I can't do this by myself, but you're no longer my property anymore. A transition in how he engages the world, rooted in a transition in how he thinks about his faith as he relates to a God who is bigger than transaction and who desires relationship. This is the message of Job. And so what about your faith? That question we'll circle back to. Where do you find yourself? I know at times and through the last two years, three years, it may be that you feel like handles that you were holding on to prior to COVID, they no longer hit as truly as they did before. You just don't know what to do with it. During the season of Lent, we're going to do a Lenten formation group. There's going to be three different meetings. And in those meetings, we're going to explore this framework that looks at faith after doubt. Faith after doubt. And what's going to be is engaging this work by Brian McLaren. He's a pastor, theologian, writer. He talks about how in faith, we learn the faith simply. Right? And that's by nature of being children, right? If you grow up in church, you can't start at 10. You've got to start at 1 and learn how to count to 10. So you start here, simplicity. But then as we age and grow, we hit a thing where we start to recognize the complexity of faith. And as we recognize the complexity of faith, sometimes that complexity can be overwhelming because we want the simplicity. So we hit complexity, and then we keep pressing, and we hit a stage where everything's just perplexed. Why should I care about this? Right? Simplicity, complexity, and then we hit perplexity. Do I just give this up? Like, how do I make sense of this? What do I do with the complexity? And then the last stage is harmony, and that's not to just smooth everything else, but it's to recognize that as you wrestle and as we wrestle with faith from these different ways of imagining God, the hope is that we engage in harmony with a God who desires that for us. And we won't be found in simplicity. Faith is not static. It's dynamic. We continue to engage ways of God and God engages us in our ways. But this is one way to imagine the journey of faith. And it's a way that we will be pressing in during the Lenten series. If that resonates with you, I encourage you to join us for those, where we'll press into more of that. There are ways to read Job simply that don't land when we try to think about our lives. And yet in the complexity, as we find a relational God, a present God, and we see Job model a present faith and a relational faith, This is the work and the presence of God in our lives, opening us up to the work and presence of God in the world around us. If I could have the band come up, Jason and Andrew, Tavo, Stephanie. This morning, we've reflected on this journey of faith that's present in the life of Job. And we've stressed how God is a relational God. Just like Job is relational with his friends. 
In many ways, his journey starts with the experience of suffering and then people sitting with him in his suffering. We can't understate how special it is for that to happen. How right and good it is for people to sit with others in time of need. And so this might feel particularly vulnerable, but if you feel like you are in that space where you need people to sit with you, you don't need to vocalize what that is, but I invite you, if you would, to just indicate that. That could be a hand, just a quick one. And as a community, we would love to pray with you. You don't need to share the details of your life. It could just be a recognition, just like in this story of Job saying, I need the touch of God. And I need that touch in a way that I don't know if these simple answers I received growing up, if they answer that. I need the relational God, not the transactional God. I need God to be present. I don't want the eggshell faith to just be wondering, where am I with this whole thing? And so, is there one? Does that resonate with you? We won't linger here too long. That's not to put the pressure on, but is there one? As we pray and sing together, would some gather around with Bill? And just join him in this time of need. Again, this isn't a time to share the nitty-gritty of your life, the details of all of that. This is just a time to be the relational body of God with someone in this body who says, I need you. The song we're going to sing is, God, I look to you. It speaks of a God that desires us to do just that, that desires for us to connect with him beyond the questions and the doubts that we have, we serve a relational God. Join me in prayer, friends. And then as we sing, would some gather and just be the body of Christ to Bill? God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time. This pause. And we selah. We reflect and we weigh out. We lift up praises to you. We lift up cries of joy and frustration. And we say, God, if you are who you say you are, would your goodness penetrate our lives and permeate all the lives that we engage throughout our week? You are met here today but beyond that, you are met in all the other places of our lives. Speak with us and to us today. And may we come to know you as a relational present presence that invites us to embody that and show that well in the world. We need you, Lord. And so be with us as we draw near to you. And we pray this with Christ by the Spirit.
Everyone said amen. As we worship and as we sing, take this time and just reflect on the journey Job's been through and find your journey in the life of God that speaks to Job. Let's worship.